Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Scattered across the continent of North America are the remains of hundreds of abandoned towns and settlements, artifacts of once thriving communities whose buildings and structures were left to erode and decay, evolving into what we now call ghost towns. Typically, the term is associated with the Wild West conjuring images of vast desert landscapes, absent everything but dusty, tumbleweed-laden paths through rotting wood structures, once used to house and serve miners and speculators who hoped to strike it rich west of the Mississippi River. But these eerie remnants of the past as diverse as the landscape of North America itself. Some have been abandoned as a result of natural disasters, from hurricanes to dust storms. Others faded away due to man-made evolution, forgotten after railroads and interstates have bypassed them and rendered them obsolete. And some were the victim of economic change, industrialization, and modernization, or even depletion of the natural resources that fueled their creation. In South Central Alabama, more than one of these factors helped bring an end to what was once the state's capital city, an agricultural town reliant on slave labor, located on the convergence of waterways prone to flood and ignored by the emergence of railroads. A city that is no more. A city named Cahaba. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. When Alabama's first state assembly met in January 1818, one of the topics on hand was the site of the future state capital. Many of the assemblymen viewed the previous territorial capital of St. Stephen's as less than ideal, preferring instead a spot more centrally located within the new state. But the assembly members were split over where that should be. 
narrowing it down to two locations, the growing settlements of Tuscaloosa and Cahaba. So a committee of five commissioners was established for the sole purpose of selecting the future capital site. The majority of the members came out in favor of Tuscaloosa. However, Alabama's governor, William Wyatt Bibb, did not agree. The following November, when the Alabama State Assembly met for a second time, Governor Bibb announced that he had obtained a free land grant from the federal government for part of a lowland area at the heart of the confluence of the Alabama and Cahaba Rivers. Thus, the decision was made. The settlement of Cahaba would be the new capital. As Cahaba was a completely undeveloped site at the time, a temporary capital was established in Huntsville, where in the following summer, Alabama's Constitutional Convention convened. Almost immediately, the anti-Cahaba assemblymen went to work, first by passing a constitutional provision designating Cahaba as the capital only until 1825, at which time the assembly could choose a different location without the need for the governor's approval. And as a final bid to ensure the capital's future relocation, the assembly designated only $10,000 for the construction of the, quote, temporary accommodation of the General Assembly. In name, Cahaba itself has Native American origins. The word has two meanings attached to two different tribes. The first meaning is that Cahaba is the Creek word for the native cane plants that covered the local river valleys of Alabama. The second meaning is that Cahaba is the result of two Choctaw words, meaning water above. It is unknown which native tribe initially identified the name of the river as Cahaba. But this area, which would become the city of Cahaba, had once been occupied by the mound builders of the native Mississippian culture. A culture that evolved into several Native American tribes, including the Creeks, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Cherokees. And this land which was eventually selected to be the state capital, is now believed to have been built upon the remains of a sizable Choctaw village dating to the early 1700s. However, by the time the Alabama assemblymen were considering this site, the village had long been abandoned for reasons unknown. By October of 1819, Governor Bibb officially announced that the plan for the town of Cahaba had been laid out 
and the lots would be auctioned off to the highest bidders. The town was organized as a grid, with the streets running north to south, named for trees, and the streets running east to west, named for famous men. The Alabama State House, or quoted, temporary accommodation, was completed in 1820. Although no known photo of this Capitol building exists, it was said to be an imposing two-story brick structure topped with a copper dome. Completion of the Capitol building sparked the beginning of rapid growth and development for the town. Property lots, which were initially being purchased for $1.25 an acre, would within weeks be sold for between $60 and $70 an acre. Records indicate that by 1822, at least two prime lots located at the center of the town were sold for more than $5,000 each. By 1821, when Cahaba was fully functioning as Alabama's state capital, it maintained a population of approximately 1,000. The town boasted multiple stores and hotels. The official state bank, two newspapers, several doctors, eight lawyers, and two ferries. It also served as ports for two of Alabama's first steamboats, By all accounts, civilization had come to Cahaba, a place once called the, quote, city in the wilderness. Unfortunately for Cahaba, to the wilderness, it was destined to return. Cahaba reached its peak in 1825 when the town welcomed its most distinguished visitor, the Marquis de Lafayette. The now aging hero of the first American and then the French revolutions was on a triumphal tour of the United States. He arrived in Cahaba on the steamboat Anderson and was greeted with plenty of pomp and circumstance befitting his celebrity. Bands played and patriotic flags waved through the air. Crowds of townspeople cheered. Bells were rung and booming cannons fired to celebrate and welcome Lafayette to Alabama's capital, where he'd be honored with a public barbecue, followed by a private dinner and ball to be hosted by Cahaba's most affluent citizens. It's estimated that the state legislature spent over $17,000 to welcome and entertain the Marquis de Lafayette, more than double the amount it had been willing to spend to build its own capital in the same town. Yet in spite of Cahaba's growth as both a functioning state capital and ceremonial host to dignitaries, there were still many members of the state's legislature still waiting and planning for the relocation of Alabama's capital city. And according to the earlier constitutional provision 
1825 marked the year when the capital's location was up for reevaluation. Unfortunately, Cahaba's most vocal supporter, former Governor William Bibb, had passed away in 1820. And now, without him to rally supporters, the once-silenced Tuscaloosa-based assemblymen finally had their chance. The most significant argument against Cahaba was its location. The town was located in a lowland area at the meeting point of the Alabama and Cahaba rivers. And the result of such a location meant it was prone to seasonal flooding. Thus many assemblymen argued against the town, referencing the high cost to repair flood damages, when the same damage would inevitably occur again. The anti-Cahaba legislatures also argued that the region had a reputation for a, quote, unhealthy atmosphere. This came from its location amidst the wilderness surrounding it, which often led it to being inundated with mosquitoes and other disease-carrying insects and pests. The final vote was close, but ultimately, the General Assembly decided that effective February 1st, 1826, the capital of Alabama would be relocated to Tuscaloosa. Cahaba, it was decided, would remain the seat of Dallas County. But for the town built around and heavily reliant upon state and government business, when the capital left, so too did many citizens and the businesses. But Cahaba did not disappear just yet. The rich, dark soil surrounding the former capital attracted a new type of people, wealthy cotton planters. What the assemblymen called an unhealthy atmosphere was in fact ideal for planting, boasting not only nutrient-rich soil necessary for growing cotton, but close proximity to two rivers, making product distribution that much easier. And within a short time, Cahaba would become a major distribution point for the cotton trade. This improved river transportation meant cotton could easily be shipped down the Alabama River to the port of Mobile. Now, supported by these wealthy planters, the plantations they operated, Cahaba saw a resurgence as a social and commercial center. No longer was the city dependent upon government business. Cotton was now king. Successful planters and merchants were building two-story mansions in the town. In 1854, the city saw the construction of St. Luke's Episcopal Church a Gothic Revival building designed by the renowned architect Richard Upjohn. Cahaba also boasted the construction of a well-established school for young ladies and the Salt Marsh Hall, a site of frequent balls and local festivities. In 1859, 
Cahaba welcomed the railroad, and the town experienced another building boom. By the 1860 census, Cahaba maintained a population of approximately 2,000, roughly double what it had been as the state capital, although the census recorded that 64% of Cahaba's residents were enslaved African Americans, most working as field hands on cotton plantations. In addition, there was also a group of free people of color who lived in town and operated a poultry business. Then, on January 11, 1860, the state of Alabama formally seceded from the Union, and for Cahaba, it was the beginning of the end. Early in the war, the Confederate government seized Cahaba's railroad, appropriating the iron rails to expand upon a nearby, more militarily strategic railroad. Also seized was a large cotton warehouse located along the river. A stockade was built around the building to fortify it, and soon enough, it was a prison for prisoners of war. It would be named Cahaba Prison, or Castle Morgan, and the structure held Union soldiers captive from 1863 to 1865. The former warehouse was about 15,000 square feet and was intended to hold only 500 prisoners at a time. But by August 1864, when Union General Ulysses S. Grant suspended the practice of prisoner exchanges between the Union and the Confederacy. Castle Morgan had a population of 600. Just two months later, this number would increase dramatically to 2,151. Growing ever more to March 1865's population of 3,000 men being held in a prison designated for 500. In spite of the overcrowding, one of the most notable aspects about Castle Morgan is that it is known to have had one of the lowest death rates of any Civil War prison on either side of the conflict, standing at about 2%. In contrast, most Confederate prisons averaged a death rate of 15.5% and Union prisons at 12%. The majority of deaths in these wartime prisons were the result of disease. And the surgeon for Cahaba Prison, R.H. Whitfield, reported a lack of hygienic conditions at Castle Morgan, specifically citing a lack of sanitary water supply. He also indicated that the most ongoing health problem was the constant outbreaks of flea infestations, which coupled with lack of sanitation resulted in illness. Given the extreme population of the prison and these unsanitary conditions that prisoners were living in, it is surprising that records, both federal and Confederate, 
report that only 142 to 147 men died at Castle Morgan. Current historians believe that Cahaba's prison's low death rate is directly linked to the attitude of the prison's commandant, Howard A.M. Henderson. Henderson was a Methodist minister who extended his belief of humane treatment to the prisoners he oversaw at Cahaba Prison. Then, in February of 1865, disaster struck Cahaba when a major flood inundated the town and prison, leaving hardship and destruction as its waters receded. A month later, the prison was emptied. Union prisoners sent on a long and arduous march to Vicksburg, Mississippi, where they would be exchanged for captured Confederate soldiers. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
The civil war had sounded a death knell for the city of Cahaba, an agricultural town built upon cotton plantations and slave labor. In 1866, it lost its position as the Dallas County seat to Selma and added with the earlier loss of the railroad to the Confederate cause, as well as the end of slavery, there was little left in Cahaba for residents to prosper by. Cahaba's business and population soon left the town, many settling in nearby Selma. And within 10 years, even the town's structures were being dismantled and moved away. In 1878, St. Luke's Episcopal Church was dismantled as well and moved 15 miles away to Martin Station, Alabama. The 1870 census recorded only 431 residents of Cahaba, Alabama, and of that number, 302 were freed former slaves. Although initially, these freed men and their family would develop the now abandoned lots into fields and garden plots. They too would soon enough move away. And the last time Cahaba appeared on census records was in 1880 with only 384 residents. At the end of the 19th century, a freeman purchased many of the town's sites for only $500. He had the buildings dismantled and the materials shipped by steamboat to Mobile and Selma to be used in new construction. Although it is unknown if this same freedman also purchased the Cahaba prison, it is known that during the downfall of Cahaba, the prison was deconstructed and its bricks shipped up the river with all the rest. Today, all that remains of the original Cahaba prison is its cement foundation. By 1900, the city was considered a ghost town, its population too negligible to be counted in the census. And by 1903, most of its structures were gone. Only a handful would survive past 1930. Almost as soon as Cahaba had been abandoned, it was considered a location of importance for archaeological and historical societies, with groups working to preserve what remained of Alabama's first state capital. And the site was officially added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1973. Today, it is the old Cahaba Archaeological Park where visitors can wander the abandoned streets, cemeteries, and ruins of the once state capital and county seat. Care is taken to preserve what remains, whether a lone fireplace and chimney or an entire building that escaped prior destruction. The last remaining home still standing in Cahaba is the Fombro Author Home, dating to 1841. And although much of the town 
has been lost to time and destruction at the expense of other growing cities, some things have returned. In 2007, the historic St. Luke's Episcopal Church was returned to its original location. But like many ghost towns, Cahaba and its abandoned ruins have also been the setting for ghost stories throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. The most popular by far are the ghostly orbs purportedly still wandering in the now-vanished garden maze at the former home of C.C. Paget, located on a lot occupied between Pine and Chestnut Streets. But as can be expected, nature has reclaimed much of Cahaba. What was once a bustling state capital and center of trade is now nothing more than picturesque ruins. The striking remains of once great houses, remnants of small slave cabins, the foundation of a prison and a lone church, all offering a reminder of the fragility of human settlement. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks.